0: Welcome to this Weekly Audio Digest edition of The Herald Scotland. From Friday the 15th to Thursday the 21st of March 2019. Read by volunteers at Cure Review, print speaking to the blind, at our studios in the Bishop Media Centre. The headlines in part one.
1: What Brexit can teach us all about Scottish independence?
2: David Ria hopes experienced Ibrox stars can help rangers in silverware hunt.
0: Angry SNP voters turn against the party over car park tax proposals.
3: Toxic land poses immediate and long-term risk to public health.
4: Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland is being short-changed over Brexit negotiations.
5: Theresa May's deal might yet pass as MPs gaze into the abyss.
0: Jim McIntyre Waley Dundee faced different tests against Celtic.
1: The Herald, Monday, March the eighteenth. The Mark Smith column. What Brexit can teach us all about Scottish independence. If you haven't seen the Brexit stare off yet, check it out online because it's one of the funniest things that's happened so far. The writer Will Self, and the Tory MP Mark Francois, were on BBC Politics Live. To talk about the EU referendum, but ended up trying to outstare each other. Neither blinked and neither budged until, in the tradition of all pointless arguments between men, a woman intervened to break it up. Not only was it delightfully mad, it was a good metaphor for the Brexit process immovable, irrational, and a little bit childish. It was also a reminder that, on the endless difficult subject of leaving the EU, we still haven't found the man or woman we need to break up the fighting. If there is any upside to be found in the whole thing, and you have to look pretty hard, it's this. The face-off between leavers and remainers could delay and possibly frustrate Brexit, although the longer-term consequences are still unclear. Over the weekend, we heard Nicola Sturgeon say again that Brexit makes Scottish independence more likely. Her deputy, Keith Brown, also said the mess of Brexit might be when the momentum for independence becomes unstoppable. In other words, the SNP is hoping still that the chaos of Brexit will drive voters into their arms. However, I wonder if we have really properly looked for the clues in the chaos, the little signs to be found in the rubble, and asked, what can we learn from them? The SNP keep arguing that the more people hate Brexit, the more they will love independence, whereas some unionists argue Brexit is a clue to how hard negotiating independence will be. But let's leave Mr Self and Mr Francois staring at each other for a minute. What shall we and we take a look at the actual parallels between leaving the EU and leaving the UK? The picture is more mixed than you might think. For a start, the UK is not the same as the EU, although the differences provide useful pointers. For instance... Difficult as Brexit is, the fact that the UK is a sovereign state means it can leave the EU without having to make difficult decisions about what currency it uses. It also doesn't have to apply to join other international organisations or sort out its foreign or defence policies. All those questions have already been answered. Obviously the same does not apply to an independent Scotland. It would be leaving a state rather than an organisation made up of states and would therefore have to make a lot of choices that the UK isn't facing with Brexit. Scotland and the rest of the UK also have shared assets and debts in a way that the UK and the EU don't. All of this means by definition that Scotland leaving the UK would be more complicated than the UK leaving the EU, which means the negotiations on independence could be even more hideous than those on Brexit. Except in one happy respect, the differences between the UK and the EU mean there would definitely, thankfully, be no equivalent to the backstop crisis if Scotland became independent because there isn't a part of Scotland that would need to be treated differently in the way Northern Ireland does. Scotland, geographically and politically, would believe in the UK as a single whole country, therefore no Scottish backstop required to the considerable relief of everyone. However, the absence of a backstop is not the same as an invisible border with England. Assuming Brexit goes ahead, the UK would be out of the single market and could restrict immigration from the EU. Equally, assuming an independent Scotland joins the EU, it would be following the four freedoms, including freedom of movement. Therefore, there would have to be checks at the Scottish border, which leads to another of the lessons amid the chaos of Brexit. Putting up barriers at borders is bad for the economy, and the same would apply to Scotland. The other clues from Brexit are just as troubling, particularly on how the negotiations might go. Part of the problem for Theresa May has been that the EU is bigger and more powerful than the UK, so the EU states have been able to dominate the negotiations – and the same could apply to Scottish independence, the the UK would be the bigger party and could end up imposing a deal that's bad for Scotland. And that's before we come to the political divisions within Scotland. With Brexit, we've seen a minority government led by Mrs May that's paralysed by a split between hard and soft Brexiters, and is reliant on a small party, the DUP, to get a deal through. But Nicola Sturgeon could find herself in a similar situation, except the divisions in her case would be between hard and soft nationalists, arguing over how close to stay in the UK. It's also likely that, in trying to get any deal through Holyrood, The SNP would be reliant on a small party, just as Mrs May is with the DUP, except that Mrs Sturgeon would be reliant on winning over hard nationalists in the Green Party. The extreme Brexiters may be the gremlins in the electrics of Brexit, but you can bet that if the SNP ever won a referendum on independence, there would be a similar type of hard Scottish nationalist pushing for an absolute form of separation. And the Jacob Rees-Mogg in this situation, the ringleader of the hard separatists, might well be the leader of the Greens, Patrick Harvey. This may be the first time Mr Harvey has been compared to the leader of the ERG, but it amuses me to do it. All of these clues point to a difficult time after a vote for independence, quite apart from the fact that the differences between the UK and the EU make another referendum devious anyway. Whatever Nicola Sturgeon and Keith Brown may have been hinting at, the UK does not need permission to leave the EU, whereas Scotland has to get consent to leave the UK. Brexit has also taught us what happens when referendums are won by a slim margin. The bitter argument goes on, the losers keep pushing for another vote, the divisions become deeper, and the wounds ooze more poison. This is what has happened in the last two years over Brexit. But take a close look at the chaos, and you can see that it's also what could happen to Scottish independence.
6: If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Q&Review channels. Now, back to the main programme.
2: For Herald, 15th of March 2019 David hopes experienced block stars can help rangers in Silverware hunt. The honour of Ranger's captain and responsibility that comes with it were his, He could share some of the burden of alls around him for. Whether it was Alan McGregor, Barry Ferguson, Stephen Davis, or Kevin Thompson, we was surrounded by players that knew what was expected of them at Ibrox and how to deliver in light blue. Obviously Alan McGregor has been there and done it, Stephen Davis has come on, Kyle Laffley has been involved. Rhea, who won eight honours during his IBOX playing career, said there are two or three from previous time, but as a group, they haven't really won any trophies. That is learning. People always say the first one is the hardest, but I think we always found the second one was the hardest. Walter used to always say that repeating a success, doing it again, was always harder, but that first one for Rangers seems if it's going to be really difficult for Rangers. Not having a knowledge like Celtic undoubtedly do. Their squad is full of players who have been coarse and distance and done it. They'll take confidence from that. There is then a big initiative for Rangers to change that. Alan McGregor definitely is and James Travener is learning to be a leader. He's definitely developing that and being captain of Rangers is not an easy thing and I think he's adjusting to it and becoming that type of player. I think Andy Halliday has those characteristics. He understands the club, for history, what is required, and I think he'll pass that on. Ryan Jack and Scott Airfield, guys that have been around the block a bit longer and have knowledge of the situation and what is required and have played at a decent level. There are players there that can help out by passing on knowledge. For those that are new to Rangers, the events of recent months will have been an eye-opening experience. When we arrived at Ibrox in 2007, he was seen as a stopgap, a short-term fix to a defence issue. His efforts were way outstripped with early expectations as Rangers enjoyed huge success. Now he looks on at a changed landscape in our game. As you get older, I definitely think you'll feel the pressure more, he said. Especially in Glasgow with the lads that understand the situation, and know what it means when Celtic pushing for 10 in a row, 8 in a row or whatever. It comes with it, that pressure, and especially as you get older, you think more about it, or in my experience, more about it. If you're younger, you go and enjoy it, and go and play, and don't have the baggage you do when you get older, and have been through bad times, and know what it's like not to win a league, or have the opposition been successful. These things weigh on your mind, and you try to use them as motivation to be successful. Those that cannot handle pressure or deal with the spotlight are ultimately of no use to Rangers. We've all seen loads of players who have come up here and we know are really talented and have done well in other leagues, but the actual intensity and scrutiny and pressure you have are under. Can put some players, it's something you either adjust to or don't. I would never say you actually get to a stage. you actually like it. You just see it as a turn as you survive through it.
6: Remember, this Weekly Digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qnreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and Weekly Digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme.
0: The Herald Scotland. Politics. Recorded on the 18th of March 2019. Angry SNP voters turn against the party over car park tax proposals. From the Herald Scotland Online. Angry SNP voters have written to Scottish ministers complaining about unfair plans to introduce a car park tax. The workplace parking levy was one of the key parts of a deal between the SNP and the Greens, enabling the minority administration to get its tax and spending plans through Holyrood in January. Councils will be given the power to impose the tax through an amendment to current proposed transport legislation going through the Scottish Parliament. The Scottish Conservatives claim that tax could cost workers up to £500 a year. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon was among those to receive letters from angry SNP members vowing to pull support for the party over the planned tax. The letters were revealed following a Freedom of Information request from the Scottish Conservatives. One wrote, I voted for the SNP for the last 44 years, but this ridiculous tax on workers driving to work is totally wrong. They said driving to their workplace takes 15 to 20 minutes, but would take an hour and a half and two buses to reach by public transport. The person vowed to resign their party membership if the tax goes ahead. Another wrote, I have always been an SNP supporter and voter. A quick check would also confirm I was a party member. I do appreciate the Scottish government say it's up to local authorities to action the tax or not. However, I have absolutely no shadow of doubt that the SNP run Glasgow City Council and others will seize the opportunity to raise revenue via this unfair tax and it will fall on people like me to just stump out because employers won't take the cost. For a simple reason, why would they? The shift worker said using buses to get to work would add two hours to his commute. A lifelong SNP supporter wrote to Transport Secretary Michael Maston, expressing disgust at the tax and vowing never to vote SNP again, saying the party comes across as flippant and smirky. One charity worker said the charge would be game over for them, as they could not afford to pay. She told Mr Matheson, how could I and many like me consider voting SNP ever again? Another voter wrote, this appears to have been added to the budget late, to get it through Parliament, without really considering how it will affect employers and their employees. More than a dozen employees of Airline Loganair, working at Glasgow Airport, wrote to Mr Mackay opposing the levy saying it is unfair and unreasonable to impose a workplace car parks tax when I have no realistic alternative to using my car. The GMB union also wrote opposing the tax while the Scottish Association of Social Workers called for the NHS exemption to be extended to their staff. Friends of the Earth Scotland and other environmental organisations wrote backing the tax saying it will cut emissions and congestion. Tory finance spokesman Myrtle Fraser called for the levy to be scrapped. He said, After being inundated with views from members of the public, the SNP should be left in no doubt about just how unpopular this plan is. Hardworking people are outraged that they should be charged even more just for driving to work, and many simply cannot afford it. SNP MSB George Adam said the Tory's hypocrisy and misinformation campaign on this issue has been brazen and frankly pathetic. The workplace parking levy is about empowering councils, allowing them to decide upon which policies work best for them. Local authorities already have such powers in tory on England, and Tory councillors in Edinburgh voted for such powers only last year, showing their recent faux outrage up for the hypocrisy that it is. From the Herald Scotland Online
6: You no longer have to get this digest programme on tape. An improved daily service is available on BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio and online at qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts. Alternatively, a 90-minute digest is also available on CastBox and you don't have to wait on the post. Go to qandreview.com forward slash weekly digest to access our CastBox channels. And now, back to the main programme.
3: Toxic land poses immediate and long term risk to public health. An exclusive by David Leask, Chief Reporter, The Herald, published in The Herald Scotland of Tuesday, the 19th of March 2019. Toxic waste dumped across swathes of Clydeside poses immediate and long term risk to human health, politicians have been told. Officials have long known massive concentrations of cancer causing chromium 4, the poison made famous by the Hollywood movie Erin Brockovich, were buried under Glasgow and South Lanarkshire. Now, in an unusually blunt briefing to MPs, MSPs and councillors, executives at regeneration agency Clyde Gateway have confirmed the deposits are leaching into the west of Scotland's river system whenever it rains. They stressed the nature of the contamination poses immediate or long-term risks to human health and the environment through land, surface water or groundwater pollution. The report, which was obtained by the Herald, was distributed after an entire stream, the Pomadi Burn, turned bright green last month in a telltale symptom of toxic pollution from waste-containing chromium-6, chromium chromium ore processing residue, or COPR. Its authors make clear this was a wake-up call. They said... A stark reminder of the all-too-real dangers to public health from the presence of COPR at Shawfield was provided in February 2019 with an incident at Balmady Burn. This frank language contradicts reassurances given to residents of the new-build scheme next to the burn, Oatlands. A spokesman for the local community council earlier this month told this newspaper... Glasgow City Council have advised that there is no risk to public health unless the contaminated water is directly ingested or comes into contact with skin. Clyde Gateway and local authorities are working to stop pollution entering the Palmaddy burn by rerouting underground rivers. However, they do not have the resources to deal with the poison at source in nearby Shawfield. This is the site of J&J White Chemicals, a giant factory which shut half a century ago after years of dumping COPR in pits and quarries around Glasgow and Lanarkshire. But new research suggests the firm, whose owners are no longer around to pay for what would now be considered a major environmental crime, dumped extensively on their own doorstep. The new report contains the first pictures of an underground network of rivers in Shawfield. Taking the, taken this month, these show water running almost fluorescent jungle green through culverts. Earlier this month, Clyde Gateway said it lacked tens of millions to clean up the site. Now its private document predicts a bill of £54 million, including the cost of compulsory purchase orders to remove some of the current landowners. Clyde Gateway does not have this money. The report said there can be no argument that without intervention by the public sector, of which Clyde Gateway is currently the main vehicle, market failure will remain. Sites will not be capable of development, but just as crucially, the contamination will continue to blight communities and pose a health issue for local residents. It added, in short, when it rains in Shawfield, there are accelerated flows of hexavalent chromium into the tributaries and the Clyde. This can only be prevented by converting it to trivalent chromium, which is not carried by any groundwater, and will this not flow? Clyde Gateway has successfully detoxified chromium polluted sites. It cleared an area it calls Phase 1 between the Shawfield Stadium and Clyde, now renamed Magenta, a business park. That work was carried out with the help of local councils, the Scottish Government and the European Union as part of a £27 million regeneration programme. This saw chromium-6, sometimes called hexavalent chromium, turned into harmless chromium-3 thanks to the injection of expensive chemicals. Contractors carried out some 6,000 injections of calcium polysulphide at depths of up to 6 metres to neutralise almost all of the poison. Clyde Gateway has similar plans to use the same technology in its Shawfield Phase 2, the 29-hectare site of j White. So far, it has only planned a £5 million spend on a 2.5-hectare portion of the site much of which is in private ownership. However, the agency's document suggests that even if it gets all the funding it needs, remediation work could extend well beyond 2024. This is because of the time needed to acquire land, either through negotiation or compulsory purchase, and secure planning and other permissions. The report underlines that the chromium-6 problem with pollution has been known about since the 1990s. Sharing pictures of discoloured flooding from the early 2000s, it said the issue of contamination gained prominence some 25 years after the factory closure and demolition when surveys carried out on nearby playing fields, which were due to be the location for a nursing home, revealed dangerously high levels of COPR with a link made to the disposal practices at J&J White. The COPR were also found to be impacting on the water table due to its prolonged existence in the soil. Polluted water was entering a number of tributaries such as the Westburn, Mollsmeyer and the Burn, elements of which were underground and subsequently flowing into the Clyde. It added, periods of heavy rainfall would regularly result in the tributaries overflowing and the subsequent floodwaters reaching street level. The colour of such floodwaters was green, giving a clear indication that chromium was being carried to locations beyond where it had originally been buried. Who will pay? Politicians all agree something must be done about the poison under Shawfield, They do not as yet quite agree on who should pay for it. Nobody likes paying to clean up somebody else's mess, but the business which dumped poison close to the Clyde is long gone. And that means government, at one level or another, or at all levels, will have to pick up the bill. The current estimate to decontaminate the site of the J&J White in Shawfield is £54 million to neutralise chromium. In the past, the European Union has helped local authorities and regeneration agency Clyde Gateway with such work. Not after Brexit... Alison Hewless is the SNP MP for Glasgow Central, including the Oatland Scheme, split by a burn turned green by a cancer-causing chemical. She challenged the UK government to contribute. Ms. Hewless said, As local residents and others will be aware, the issue of toxicity in the water at Pomady Burn and in the surrounding areas is a historical one. Unfortunately, financial recompense cannot be sought from the factory owners who dumped the chemicals that gave way to the problem, not least as the facility closed in the 1960s. There is a significant post-industrial legacy of contamination in the Shawfield-Palmady area, a fact that gave significant impetus to the setting up of Clyde Gateway back in 2008. Due to Brexit, EU funding will no longer be available to Clyde Gateway and the UK government has yet to commit to replacing it. The UK government must recognise that without a significant investment of this kind, we will fail to properly restore and develop brownfield land. The problem of historical contamination at shawfield Palmadi, is complex and too large to be adequately tackled by one group alone – It's imperative, therefore, that all parties work together to find a proper, lasting solution to the issue and to make this land safe for future generations. Ms Hewless and her Labour colleague, Jed Killen, earlier this month stressed to locals, including campaigner Gavin Cabry, that there was no room for party politics in a clean-up. Mr Killen, however, said he thought the buck would stop with the SNP at Holyrood. Scottish Conservative Glasgow MSP Adam Tompkins has also been briefed on the toxicity and appeared to hint at a joint response. He said Conservative led governments have invested billions of pounds of public money in city growth deals since 2010, including in Glasgow. In Glasgow, as elsewhere, part of that investment is being used to remediate industrial land so that it is safe for fresh development. This is already happening in Sight Hill, and it needs to happen in Shawfield too. When there is a threat to public health, all the more reason for investing in remediation. Clyde Gateway has a remarkable record of success in redeveloping Glasgow's East End. Both the Scottish and UK governments should support its work in every way they can.
4: Article from Herald Scotland, 19th of March 2019, Politics. Nicola Sturgeon. Scotland is being short-changed over Brexit negotiations. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has written to Prime Minister Theresa May to raise her concerns over the role of the devolved administrations during the Brexit talks. In a letter sent on Monday, Ms Sturgeon called on the Prime Minister to provide greater clarity and assurances, following reports of her strategy in trying to win a majority to pass her Brexit deal in Parliament. Mrs May's deal has already been voted down twice by MPs. Yesterday, John Bercow scuppered the chance of another Commons vote on the Prime Minister's deal before Thursday's EU summit, leading one minister to warn that the government faces a major constitutional crisis. The First Minister described reports of a possible offer to the DUP in order to gain support for her deal as concerning and said that Scotland had been repeatedly ignored throughout the Brexit process. She wrote, As you are aware, like Northern Ireland, Scotland voted to remain in the European Union. In the past two years, however, Scotland's wishes and national interests have been roundly ignored and at times treated with contempt by the UK government. The First Minister highlighted her concern over the involvement the devolved nations could have in discussions over any future trade relationship between the UK and the EU. She wrote, Firstly, there must be no question of one political party, the DUP, being represented in talks on the future trade relationship between the UK and EU when other political parties and devolved governments are not. As you are aware, In August 2018, the Scottish Government published a paper in respect of our role in international trade negotiations. There has been no indication that the UK Government is taking these proposals seriously, although there has since been support for a greater role for devolved administrations in trade negotiations from both the International Trade and Scottish Affairs Select Committees in the House of Commons. In addition, there have been no meaningful moves to ensure the devolved governments have a properly enhanced role in the next phase of EU-UK negotiations. Secondly, the UK government's proposals to the DUP appear to involve a serious curtailment of the powers of the Scottish Parliament. Many of the relevant rules fall within devolved competence, and therefore it is not in the gift of the UK Government to unilaterally constrain the powers of the Scottish Parliament in order to strike a deal with the DUP. Continued alignment can only be guaranteed with the full support of the Scottish Government and Parliament. As you will be aware, the Scottish Government continues to be concerned that Scotland will be placed at a disadvantage if your proposals take place. Ms Sturgeon also said that funding to Northern Ireland, £1 billion as part of a confidence and supply agreement in 2017, and an additional allocation of £140 million in Northern Ireland's 2019-20 budget, had served to shortchange Scotland. The UK government cannot continue to favour Northern Ireland over the other devolved administrations for short-term political gain, and we expect any future funding to be allocated in a fair and transparent manner. The First Minister also reiterated her support for holding another vote on leaving the EU. She added, I have said and will continue to say that while there is no broad consensus in the UK Parliament for your Brexit deal, the decision ought to be put back to the people in a second EU referendum. That is the responsible and democratic thing to do. A UK government spokesman said, The Prime Minister is committed to delivering a Brexit that works for all parts of the United Kingdom, Scotland, Wales, England and Northern Ireland. The deal she has negotiated is in the best interests of businesses and households across Scotland and will bring new opportunities to fishing and farming communities. We have worked constructively with the Scottish Government throughout the Brexit process, consistently updating them on negotiations and listening to their views.
6: Q and Review Prince Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from The Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email a-a-a-t-l at qandreview.com. That's triple-a-t-l at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at curenreview.com. Thank you. Now back to the main programme.
5: The Glasgow Herald from Wednesday, the 20th of March 2019. Opinion Theresa May's deal might yet pass as MPs gaze into the abyss. By Ian McWhorter, political editor. Well, at least he gave us something new to bicker about for 24 hours. John Berko, the common speaker, is insufferably pompous and long-winded, but his lecture in the government on Erskine May was a great piece of political theatre. It means very little, because while it's clearly out of order for the government to put the same motion to Parliament again and again, there are many ways in which Theresa May's deal can be repackaged, such as formally proposing a change to the date of Article 50, which is currently the law. And if that doesn't work, she can put a motion to suspend standing orders. Of course, she needs a majority for that to work, and she still hasn't got one. The Brexit press seemed to believe that the Berco block was a blow in favour of Remain, but it was equally welcomed by hard Brexiters like Sir Bill Cash and Owen Paterson. Indeed, not having to put a third meaningful vote, MV3, this week, arguably played into the government's hands too by giving the Prime Minister an excuse not to subject her deal to a third humiliating defeat. You get the impression from listening to all parties to this parliamentary perma-shambles that they'd all really rather prefer to stop voting altogether. A kind of fatalism has descended. MPs are exhausted with the effort of having to find new ways to say what they don't want. The government has started talking in riddles and Mrs May has lost her voice altogether. Brussels is finding our quaint parliamentary antics amusing, like a rerun of Monty Python. Angela Merkel and Mrs May seem agreed now that the best thing to do is to suspend Article 50 so that everyone can continue doing nothing for another three months or even two years. Mind you, there have been some significant developments beneath the surface of non-events. Labour has finally started talking with the SNP, Lib Dems and supporters of a Norway Plus option. This will at least force Jeremy Corbyn to find new ways of not agreeing with them. There's little difference between the European Economic Area option and his idea of a permanent customs union combined with regulatory alignment with the single market. But if there is a way to prevent consensus breaking out across parties, no doubt they'll find one. All the parties have done their best to prevent Parliament coming together behind the one option most MPs agree on. They all want to be able to blame each other for whatever happens after Brexit Day the SNP supported the single-market-stroke-EEA option in two white papers and one general election manifesto, but is now focused on a second referendum. For their part, many Tory and Labour Brexiters, the more sentient ones, are getting seriously worried that, by continuing to reject Mrs May's deal, they may lose Brexit altogether. This is an entirely rational fear. About the only thing the Commons has managed to agree upon is that it doesn't want a no-deal Brexit – Conservative websites like Guido Fox and Conservative Home are humming with arguments from Brexiteers like the former Minister Esther McVeigh, saying that Mrs May's deal may be worse than remaining in the European Union, but they'll vote for it anyway. Though a hard core of moggists will never submit. The Commons has also said that it doesn't want a repeat referendum on Brexit. At least that was the overwhelming result of last week's People's Vote Amendment – I still haven't heard a convincing argument for why most Remainers refuse to vote for this proposal, even though it came from the independent group of Labour rebels. It will be hard, following Mr Berko's ruling on not putting repeat questions to the Commons, to find another direct way of proposing it next week. Instead, we have the Kyle Stoke Wilson amendment from two Labour MPs who want their party to vote for Mrs May's deal on the condition that it is put to a confirmation ballot of the people in a referendum. There are two problems with this. First, it means Labour actually voting for a deal that it has repeatedly said is an abomination, threat to jobs, undemocratic and so on. And second, there is no guarantee that the referendum would come out the right way. I don't see how a repeat referendum could exclude no DO, since that is what many people thought they were voting for in 2016. Labour might want its preferred option on the ballot too. This could leave us with a complex multi-option referendum in which no one would win or lose convincingly. It would also mean the removal of Mrs May, since she has said repeatedly that she will never accept a referendum. It could come to that. It's an open secret that the government whips have been suggesting to Brexit MPs that if they back Mrs May next week they can also sack her at the same time. For many this must be tempting. Yes it would mean supporting a deal they loathe but it would perhaps mean getting Boris Johnson into Downing Street. Incomprehensible though that may be the former London Mayor is still extremely popular among the Tory membership and he's recently cut his hair to show that he isn't a wild child anymore. The Brexit ultras could persuade themselves that having Mr Johnson in charge or Michael Gove or Dominic Raab would mean that the future negotiations on the political declaration, that is, the post-Brexit trading relationship with the EU, could lead to Britain ending up with a minimalist Canada-style free trade deal after two years. The Irish backstop would of course remain an obstacle, but a British PM who doesn't care about Britain's image in the diplomatic world could always resort to the so-called Vienna principle that no country can be held in a treaty indefinitely without its agreement. Just walk. Come to think of it, the prospect of Boris Johnson in Number 10 might be the one thing that forces Labour and mainstream Tory MPs to unite in extremists behind Mrs May's deal. As one of them put it, Squeaky bottom time is nigh. MV3 may still pass into law next week as MPs gaze the Scotland
0: Sport, recorded on the this 15th of March, 2019. Jim McIntyre wary Dundee faced different tests against Celtic by Darren Johnston. Dundee manager Jim McIntyre admits his side must be ready to face a completely different challenge against Celtic this weekend. McIntyre watched the Dark Blues run Hearts close in a 1-0 defeat last weekend in a match that was full of commitment but lacking in quality. After coping with Hearts' direct approach for most of the game at Denz Park, McIntyre concedes his players must now show they can stifle Celtic's free-flowing style. He said, I was really pleased with how we dealt with them for most of the game. Obviously, the disappointment was the goal and we should clear it. The next game is as tough as they come, and Celtic won't be as direct as Hearts, that's for sure. They like to play through the lines. Their movement is fluid. We are facing another good side, but they play a completely different way to Hearts. We've got a lot of work to do to get the right result, but on our day, we're capable. With the dense park side sitting just a point above relegation, Rival St. Mirren, in 11th place in the Premiership standings, are on a three consecutive deaths, and needs to be arrested sooner rather than later. After Hamilton Accies slept up last weekend in the Lancashire Derby against Motherwell, only three points currently stand between Dundee and the haven of 10th place, and McIntyre insists the focus for his side is to look up the table rather than over their shoulders, even if that means trying to get points against the best sides in the league. You have to look to pick up points against teams you're not expected to, he said. That can also have an effect on others as well as boosting yourselves. Obviously, we hope that other results go our way. I'm not going to sit here and kid on. I'm not. But you have to concentrate on what you can do yourself. By Darren Johnston
6: That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be coming back with more great articles from the Herald Scotland. Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. Our regional development manager, Sophie Weldon, said, Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information and entertainment, but also, more importantly, companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk That is S-O-P-H-I-E at B-L-I-N-D dot org dot U-K or phone 01283 that's 01283 790 208 or on 07540 724 063. That is 07540 724 To find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme.
0: Welcome back. The headlines in part two. Arts News. Hebrides Ensemble Tour. BBC SSO unveil new season. Avery's new show in Edinburgh.
2: Debenhams raise up Mike Ashley's
3: loan offer.
1: Race cooking up a storm in Aki's bid to avoid the drop.
3: Neil Mackay. White supremacy is a white disease.
4: Rory McIlroy's Players' Championship win justifies his own faith.
5: The shunning of James Kelman. How strange it is, how strange.
0: Double delight for Hearts boss Craig Levin as Naismith nears return and Decamona signs a new deal.
3: Young are right to challenge complacent older generations on climate change.
0: The Herald Scotland. Arts, recorded on the 15th of March, 2019. Arts News, Hebrides Ensemble Tour, BBC SSO unveil new season, Avery's new show in Edinburgh, by Arts Correspondent Phil Miller. The Hebrides Ensemble is on tour to Perth, Edinburgh and Greenock, with the Irish soprano Eilish Tynan. The group will perform two concerts on the 6th of May, a lunchtime concert at the Perth Concert Hall and a tea time concert at Grey Fires Kirk. On the 7th of May, the ensemble makes its guinea debut at Beacon Art Centre. The concert in Perth will be live streamed for its international audience who are unable to attend its concerts in person. The programme includes works by Rebecca Clarke, Judith Weir, Jean Franchet, Rosalie Burrell and Ravel. Judith Weir will give a pre-concert talk at the Beacon Art Centre on Tuesday the 7th of May in advance of our International Composer Seminar on Wednesday the 8th of May at Edinburgh's Stockbridge Parish Church. The ensemble performs regularly at venues and festivals throughout the UK and Europe and is regularly featured in broadcasts for BBC Radio 3. In recent years, the ensemble has given premieres at the Musiki in Amsterdam, London's King's Place, the Wigmore Hall, Aldborough Festival and, in 2018, made its debut appearance at the BBC proms. The BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra has launched its 2019-20 season, which includes world premieres from Enrico Ciapella, Roxana Panufnik, Emma Ruth Richards and Bent Sorensen, and a UK premiere from Chaya Czernowin. The season features an orchestral adaptation of Wagner's The Ring, and a concert dedicated to the music of Helens Holger the Swiss musician and conductor in tribute to his eightieth birthday elsewhere in the season the orchestra will be conducted by ilan volkov for nono's per bastiana Taiyang cheng for orchestra and electronics guest conductors including anthony hermas alondra de la Para, michael sanderling gergely madras valentina pelegge and mark wigglesworth there will be a tour of japan for the first bbc proms japan A Beethoven symphony cycle will be performed over five evenings to mark the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. Thomas Dosgaard, BBC SSO Chief Conductor said, I'm really looking forward to the new season and to sharing our joy in music with people across the country and abroad, live and broadcast. The fearless excellence of the BBC SSO, our beautiful hall and great audience makes for a dynamic and irresistible cocktail. The Beethoven symphonies, will be performed over five evenings in Glasgow. The artist Charles Avery is to present his new show, The Gates of Onomatopoeia, from the 27th of April to the 13th of July, at a gallery in Edinburgh. Avery, since 2005, has made art focused on his own fictional island, with sculptures, drawings, texts, and other works. The Gates of Onomatopoeia at the Ingleby Gallery include several new drawings and a large new sculpture. Tree number six, The Union Tree, is seated at the centre of the gallery. It is 6 metres in height, made of steel, brown glass, 24-volt electrics and an old shoe, and described as part tree, part street lamp and part temple. Avery's installation, untitled Dihedra, will be presented as part of Now at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art from the 1st of June to the 22nd of September. Charles Avery will also present his work, at the Pera Museum as part of the 16th Istanbul Biennial from the 14th of September to the 10th of November 2019. Avery was born in 1973 in Oban. By arts correspondent Phil Miller.
2: The Herald, 15th of March 2019. Debenhams raise up Mike Ashley's loan offer. In response followed Sports Direct confirmation that I had made an offer of a loan to Debenhams as part of an arrangement which would install Mr. Ashley as its chief. This came as Sports Direct also revealed that I had made a complaint to the city watchdog over communications from Debenhams. In a written letter just days before Mr. Ashley launched an attempt to cope to install himself on a Debenhams board, Sports Direct took issue with the retailer's result statements. Debenhams branded the complaints unfounded and self-serving. But in the latest tryst of the ongoing saga, Debenhams confirmed it would look at a proposed loan from Sports Direct. It said in a statement, Debenhams acknowledges Sports Direct's statement and confirms receipt of its proposal to provide a £150 million unsecured 12-month term loan to the company, subject to certain conditions. The department store chain said any such loan would require the backing of current lenders and material amendments to existing facilities. It added, nevertheless, the board will give careful consideration to the proposal and will engage with Sports Direct and other stakeholders regarding its feasibility in the interest of all parties. Under the terms of the loan offer, Debenham's shareholders would vote on whether to issue new shares to Sports Direct taking a holding to 35%. If this was approved, the loan would be interest-free, but without the share issue, would bear 3% interest. The loan would see Debenhams use £40 million to pay down existing debt and the remaining £110 million available for working capital. The retailer, which has 14 stores in Scotland, is battling a 500000000 million-plus debt mountain, which has also been trying to refinance with a debt-for-equality swap or rights issue are partly considered. It is the latest move in Mr Ashley's High Street shopping spree. Last year he bought House of Fraser and Evan Cycles and has previously been linked to bids for Valerie and HMV. Debenhams had previously rebuffed funding offers from his firm. Independent retail analyst Nick Bubb was quoted as saying of Debenhams move tactically that might well be the right way to respond but Debenhams would have to be desperate to take the plan seriously. Sports Direct Letters shared with media on Wednesday, which was dated March 4th, the day before Debenhams issued a profit warning to the market, took issue with a trading statement in January. In the trading statement in question, Debenhams noted it was currently on track to meet market expectations. Eight weeks later, the retailer warned that profits would be lower after a hit to sales in the 18 weeks to January 5th. Sports Direct, which is the largest shareholder in Debenhams, was sent a copy of a profit warning the night before it was made public. The letter was also shared with the Financial Conduct Authority in a move Sports Direct described as putting its concerns on record. Mr Ashley tabled a proposal last Thursday for the shareholder meeting to remove all of the current members of the Debenhams board over then Finance Chief Rachel Osborne. Part of the department store chain plans have included a closure of 50 stores.
6: If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Q&Review channels. Now, back to the main programme.
1: The Herald Monday, March the 18th Sport, the Tam McManus column Rice cooking up a storm in Aki's bid to avoid the drop Hamilton Ackies At the start of every season, they are chalked up as the bookies' favourite to get relegated. The Ackies are perennial premiership strugglers, but year after year they prove so many of the pundits and so-called experts wrong. But I must admit, in the latter part of Martin Canning's reign, I did think that they would finally succumb to the dreaded drop. And obviously, so did the Hamilton board. Ackes had won just four of the first 23 league games, and the style of play under Canning I thought was more set up to try not to lose rather than having a goal, being positive, and going for three points every week. I think the majority of the Hamilton fans would agree with that. That's not me having a go at Canning, far from it. He achieved his objectives at Hamilton, and kept them in the Premiership for three straight seasons. That is no mean feat. But, for me, football is an entertainment business. Yes, you need to get results, but supporters pay money and want to watch entertaining football. That's why I think the Hamilton Aquis fans have taken to Brian Rice straight away. Chipper, as he is known among the football fraternity, is without doubt one of the most positive coaches I have ever worked under. He was John Hughes's assistant manager at Falkirk when I was a player at the club back in 2006. Yogi himself is in much the same mould as Brian in that he wants his sides to be brave and attack. Neither of them ever set up at Falkirk side to be defensive or to nick a point. We had Russell Latapé in a free roll and went and attacked teams home and away. That applied to both sides of the old firm too. We took a couple of pastings along the way, but we also beat Celtic at Parkhead and Rangers at the Falkirk Stadium. We were open and expansive, and the management team had massive confidence in the players. Basically, we were allowed to go and express ourselves with very little pressure. Brian was so attack-minded in his thinking, and when I heard that he had been appointed Hamilton Ackie's manager, I knew straight away that the Ackie's fans had the manager they craved. I was actually at his debut game as a manager in what turned out to be a very watchable 1-1 draw with relegation rivals Dundee. Both Hamilton fullbacks were bombing forward during the first ten minutes. It was gung-ho stuff. They bombarded Dundee with shots and crosses, and straight off the, the bat, the Ackies fans, who had been starved of that kind of entertainment for years, were hooked. There was so much positivity on the pack that it immediately transferred to the fans. I had a little smile to myself and said, Whatever happens between now and the end of the season, Hamilton Akies will be flat out trying to win every game home and away. That's what supporters want. Yes, there will be some tankings along the way, simply because of the way Chipper will set them up. Aki's certainly got one from Rangers in a 5 nothing defeat at this start of his reign. But I think the Aches fans will swallow that, if they can go and beat teams of the calibre of Aberdeen, St Johnson and Hearts, which they have done in recent weeks. Of course, results matter, and ultimately Brian needs to keep Hamilton Ackies in the Premiership. They now have a six-point gap over Dundee and are seven points above St Mirren, after a great win over Hearts at the weekend, with the split just a few games away. Aki's will probably need another two or three wins between now and the end of the season to secure their Premiership status. What I do know is that they will probably come when people least expect it, much like winning at Pitadre and beating the aforementioned Hearts. The Hamilton fans are lapping up the football that is being played at the minute and the refreshing attacking tactics. I just hope that Chipper gets rewarded by keeping them in the division, I think coaches like him are a dying breed. They say fortune favors the brave. If that is indeed the case, then Brian Rice will get his just rewards, and once again Hamilton Aches will defy all the odds. And another thing, Celtic ground out an ugly workmanlike one nothing win at Dens Park yesterday, to go ten points clear in the Premiership table. It was a very poor performance but they do what great champions always do. They find a way to win. It's a trait that Rangers simply don't have, that ability to win ugly. Until they do, Celtic will continue ploughing on towards ten in a row.
3: Neil Mackay, White Supremacy is a White Disease, an article by Neil Mackay, writer-at-large, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 19th of March 2019. I remember driving down Detroit's famous eight-mile road with a white supremacist called Sean Sugg a decade ago. Sugg was fantasising about genocide and talking about the so-called 14 words which lie at the heart of the white supremacist credo and read, We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. If we are to defeat the far-right terror now on the rise around the world, we must understand it. Atrocities, such as the New Zealand mosque attacks, don't happen in isolation. Like Islamist killings, there's a global ideology behind such attacks and sprawling networks of interlinked groups and people. I've spent 25 years interviewing neo-Nazis across the West to try and understand what makes them stick. They genuinely believe that the white race is being destroyed by Western governments and these governments are, of course, in their minds, controlled by Jews. This may sound crazy to the average Scottish voter, And intellectually, it is crazy. But there are many people across the West who hold these views and they're becoming more visible, more powerful and even shifting from the extremist fringes. They've been abetted by Twitter and Facebook. The normalisation of hate in the mainstream media with the use of people such as Katie Hopkins who once suggested using gunboats against migrants. As commentators and the normalisation of extremism in politics through the likes of UKIP and Donald Trump. The president recently hinted his supporters could turn violent. White terror poses as great a threat as Islamist terror. Young white people from all backgrounds, though mostly working-class and poorly educated, are being radicalised in every city in the West. White supremacists I've known glorify killing, loathe democracy and would use violence to achieve their ends. There's little that separates them from Islamist extremists. They're often life's losers. They hate and they want to destroy. Many long for race war. If yesterday's shootings in Utrecht were indeed the work of an Islamist gunman, we need to begin to fear the rise of tit-for-tat murders. In the wake of the New Zealand attack, a rash of hate crimes broke out across Britain. A stabbing in Surrey is being treated as a terrorist incident. A man and a woman have been charged over an incident in Rochdale after a taxi driver was abused with threats referencing New Zealand. A woman and man were arrested over online comments about the attack. Police in London are hunting three men who made anti-Muslim remarks and then attacked another man with a blunt object. Swastikas were daubed on walls in Oxford along with references to the YouTuber PewDiePie who was name checked by the Christchurch gunman. The Muslim Council of Britain says there is a palpable sense of fear among the community and has called for better security at mosques. Security funding has already been increased for synagogues and Jewish schools due to the rise in anti-Semitic attacks. Dame Louise Casey, the UK government's former integration czar, and Sir Mark Rowley, former police national lead on counter-terrorism, jointly spoke out describing divisive rhetoric and a climate of hate that is feeding extremism. The atmosphere in the UK is febrile. People feel left behind and not part of liberal Britain. They are highly susceptible to extremist narratives. We have alienated angry white working class communities who feel they have little stake in society or the economy. And we have highly segregated British Muslims stuck in low-paid jobs and feeling under attack, they said. The UK security minister, Ben Wallace, says that mass shootings of Muslims by a far-right terrorist absolutely could happen here. Crimes inspired by white supremacism have already happened here, however, as we saw with the murder of Joe Cox, MP. British security services place the threat of the far-right on a par with Islamist and Irish terror. In Scotland, far more right extremists have been flagged to the PREVENT programme, which is meant to spot people becoming radicalised than Islamists. Britain has already outlawed one neo-Nazi organisation, National Action. A member was jailed for the attempted murder of a Sikh dentist with a hammer and machete, and the organisation has called for white jihad. In the years which I have studied the far right, I've come to one firm conclusion. Fascism flourishes in a vacuum. In the 1990s and 2000s, the West failed collectively to address concerns within primarily white working class areas over immigration and multiculturalism. In Britain, any attempt to hold a conversation was immediately silenced with claims of racism. Many people felt voiceless and the far right moved in offering a voice. We need to address concerns even if we find them ugly. That doesn't mean giving white supremacists a neutral stage to propagandise hate, but it does mean listening to people who might be vulnerable to their message, and it also means scrutinising, dismantling and defeating the far-right message of division. Our silence means former England Defence League leader Tommy Robinson can now stage 4,000 strong rallies – Nazi organisations in the UK, like the new Sonnenkrieg division, are getting louder each day. It wants execution for race-mixing and published images of a bloodied Prince Harry with a gun to his head and the words, See you later, race traitor. Sonnenkrieg also calls for the rape of police officers and glorifies Anders Breivik, the Norwegian neo-Nazi mass murderer anti radicalization programmes need to be expanded in schools, communities and colleges, and the message needs put out repeatedly that extremism is colorblind. If every Muslim has been told to watch for extremists, then every white person should be told the same. White supremacy is a white disease and white people need to be vigilant against it, growing among their friends, family and colleagues.' Hand the job of tackling the far right to the security services. Extremist organisations need to be infiltrated, just like Islamist groups believe to be preparing acts of terror. Arrest members and proscribe far right organisations like Sonnenkrieg Division once they advocate any form of criminal behaviour. Honest debate, defending decency, a society built for everyone... And intolerance of the intolerable. These are the values that will protect the liberal West. Without these values, hatred, division and violence beckon.
6: Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qnreviewcom forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme.
4: Article from Herald Scotland, 19th of March 2019, Sport. Rory McIlroy's Players' Championship Win Justifies His Own Faith by Nick Roger, Golf Correspondent If there's one thing the modern world does particularly well, apart from, say, political nincompoopery on a quite jowl-shuddering scale, its hysterical knee-jerk reaction, Everywhere you turn, there are tibiofemoral joints being flexed here and patalofemoral joints being cracked there as all and sundry embark on the kind of terror-stricken reposts to a variety of situations that can only lead to one thing. That's right, an ep- epidemic of sore-blooming knees. Of course, the ongoing shenanigans with Brexit have not helped this general state of mouth-frothing delirium and bog-eyed ranting. Out for a gentle meander the other day this scribe was confronted by a bloke who was so convinced that a no-deal Brexit would lead to the immediately extinction of bread he was tossing i o u s to the duck in the Rook and glen boating pond when it comes to matters involving rory mcilroy meanwhile there is often a frenzied unhinged reaction to his various golfing toings and froings as ferociously fickle pundits and punters blow hot and cold and regularly switch from gushing adoration to withering cynicism, like some hyperactive imbecile tugging on a pull-cord bathroom light. After his thrilling, brilliantly executed victory in the Players' Championship on Sunday, which brought him a first PGA Tour title for a year, McElroy silenced his critics with rousing authority and a two-fingered flourish in circumstances which made many may have expected him to sag. Not that McElroy was going to gloat. I don't play golf to answer. I play golf for myself, he insisted. I play golf because I love the game and I know that I have a talent for it. It was a timely tonic for McElroy and a success which featured all the hallmarks of a great champion. And that's what McElroy is and hopefully will continue to be. I think I can make the next ten years even better than the previous ten years, said McElroy. That's what my motivation is. The Players' Championship may not be a major, but this was a major moment for a player who will be bidding for the career Grand Slam at Augusta National next month. His tee shots of great fortitude on the 16th and 18th holes of the treacherous stadium course were so nerveless, disciplined and unwavering that the pro-tracer thingamibob that follows ball flight on the telly could have been made out of cast iron. And even in the tumult and pressure of the Championship cut and thrust down the stretch, McElroy approached it with a sprightly, decisive pace which was a much-needed antidote to the pesky virus of slow play. When all the cogs and pistons of McElroy's game are working in unison, there is no finer sight in golf. Despite finding the consistency that once eluded him, he has not missed a cut since last June and has not been out of the top six in 2019. Critics questioned the Northern Irishman's hunger and his inability to close out a win, while tossing up the statistic that nine appearances in the final group of a tournament since the start of 2018 had failed to yield a victory. They fretted over his mental state, his putting, and his choice of caddy. That he pipped the 48-year-old Jim Furyk to the title at Sawgrass merely underlined the folly of those who doubted him. McElroy has not yet turned 30, but has already amassed 24 professional wins, including four majors. Health and fitness permitting, we can only wonder what he will have achieved by the time he reaches Furex Vintage. In this game for all the ages, McElroy has that time on his side as he moves forward towards his physical and mental prime. Patience remains one of the great virtues in this royal and ancient pursuit, and while many folk were working themselves into a dreadful fankle about Rory's drought and falling over themselves to reach for the panic button, just about the only player not getting hot under the collar was McElroy himself. Doubt him at your peril. Inevitably, there already seems to be something of a clamour building suggesting that McElroy can now go on and dominate. We've been here before, of course, and not just with McElroy. Ever since golf was liberated from the tyranny of Tiger, the global game has been in an era of relative parity. From McElroy's last major win in 2014, for instance, the last 16 Grand Slam events have been won by 12 different players. Exerting a stranglehold is easier said than done. There are no guarantees in this age of formidable strength in depth, and in golf, predictions tend to be a fool's errand. What is certain is that the pandemonium surrounding McElroy in the build-up to the Masters will be so breathless they'll be dishing out oxygen masks in the Augusta Media Centre. Either that, or they'll be performing replacement surgery on all those aforementioned knees. And another thing. Jordan Spieth, remember him? The three-time major winner has almost become something of a forgotten man. What would the 25-year-old give for Rory McElroy's form these days? The young Texan's last victory was in the 2017 Open, and he's not recorded a top-ten finish since he shared ninth in last year's Open at Carnoustie. If folk were questioning McElroy after a run of top-five finishes, they may as well condemn Spieth to the knacker's yard following a sequence of results which have left him down in 30th place on the world rankings. I'm getting tired of it now, grumbled Spieth of his slump.
5: The Glasgow Herald, 21st of March, 2019 The Shunning of James Kelman How Strange It Is, How Strange by Rosemary Goring, literary editor, columnist Remember when James Kelman walked up to accept the Saltire Scottish Book of the Year award and proceeded to criticise the literary establishment? His ire was primarily directed at a cultural climate that meant that, even with the prize proceeds in his pocket, his annual income from writing was pitiful. It was resentment, not only on his own behalf, but for others in the same situation. Moderate your language, shouted one of the audience, as Kelman stepped off stage. Some thought him ungrateful and rude, but how right he was, how right. To mark the 25th anniversary of winning the Booker Prize with How Late It Was, How Late, Kelman recently gave an interview to the New Statesman. That novel was widely lambasted for its so-called profanity, which so shocked one judge, Rabbi Julia Neuberger, that she stormed out of the meeting. Over my dead body was the mildest of her comments. About a year ago, Kelman finished a new novel, which, he revealed, has still to find a publisher. After a long period with Secker and Warburg and Hamish Hamilton, he moved to Canongate with his last two books, That Was a Shiver and Dirt Road, both of which were well received. But this new manuscript languishes untouched and apparently unloved. Nobody, it seems, even in his own heath, is willing to make a decent offer for it. With some writers you could understand. Thanks to technology that registers every sale, publishers and booksellers can see exactly how bankable their books are. When approached by a writer, they can track their performance at the click of a mouse. If this is healthy, they are far more likely to pounce on them than if the novelist's sales have not even covered their advance, leaving a publisher effectively in the red. This does not, of course, mean the novelist is no good. Sometimes it indicates the reverse. Literary fiction is a highly rarefied taste, as it always was. Only the most fortunate of such writers make a good living from the proceeds of books alone. For most, it is a struggle to get by, hence the number of Finding Shelter Teaching on Creative Writing Courses. Calman himself went down that route for a time, but you can be fairly sure that if his books had sold like airport bestsellers, there would have been no need to find a financial cushion. In what you can only call the good old days, a young writer like Graham Greene would be given considerable leeway with his early books by a publisher confident that one day he would reward their patience. Today there is no slack in the system. No time to nurture or take the long view. You are only as good as your last book. And in the case of someone like Kelman, whose readership is a mere fraction of those interested in serious fiction, that spells trouble. Why do most of those who leap on every little title by Julian Barnes or Rose Tremaine often not bother with Kelman? Undoubtedly, the furore over his booker winner damaged his reputation, not only in the rest of the UK, but also here. Kelman, however, suspects there is a more fundamental and disturbing reason. He believes that English publishers are keeping a lid on Scottish writers by dismissing them as a genre. They would rather publish mediocre English novelists, he says, than good Scottish ones. There are enough excellent Scottish novelists reaching print to argue that point, but for me this is a distraction from the main issue. Even if Kelman is right and there is an anti-Scottish bias among literary publishers, that still does not explain why no Scottish publisher is willing to take him on. Could his new book be too difficult or tricky? It would seem strange if that were the case, given his long and distinguished backlist in which there is rarely a misfire. The answer is far more likely to be about money and the state of the book trade in general. In other words there is no publisher able or prepared to offer a fee commensurate with what a Kelman book is worth that's worth in artistic terms you understand not sales I do not doubt it would be a better investment to publish Diana Galbalden if filling the coffers is the main objective but while the kind of books Kelman writes are unlikely to share a publisher in gold they would add immeasurably to its luster Here is a novelist who has been shortlisted for the Man Booker International Prize and is a worthy Nobel contender. Even consider this my official plea to the Nobel Prize Literature Committee to read everything Kelman has written and tell us his urve does not equal or surpass many of their laureates. Yet nobody on his doorstep wants to take his new book. It's hard to think of another country where its foremost living writer would be treated like this. The only conclusion you can come to is that the world of books has lost it. I'd speak even more plainly, but I'm aware I must moderate my language. This article by Rosemary Goring, literary editor and columnist
6: Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from The Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email a-a-a-t-l at qandreview.com. That's triple-a-t-l at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at cureandreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme.
0: The Herald Scotland, Sport, recorded on the 15th of March, 2019. Double delight for Hearts boss Craig Levin as Naismith nears return and DeCamona signs a new deal by Alan Temple. Horse manager Craig Levin is reveling in a double dose of good news after revealing Stephen Naismith's knee operation had gone better than expected and that Clevid DiCamona's contract had been extended. Naismith underwent surgery for the second time in five months on Monday and Levin is confident he'll make an earlier return following initial estimates he could be sidelined for up to 10 weeks. Naismith has notched 14 club goals this term but has not featured since the February 27th defeat to the Celtic. Levin said, The operation went really bad. They'd taken a little bit of the cartilage out, and it wasn't as bad as they first feared, so I'm fairly certain that he'll play again before the season ends. That's a boost, of course. I'm not sure how long he'll be out. I don't want to put a number on it and be wrong. I've spoken to the physio, young Craig Maitland, who went down with Stephen and watched the operation, so I got a blow-by-blow account of what happened. I think most of the rehab will be done here. The fact that he's back up the road with his family is a good thing for him as well. I don't think there will be much rehab in the first couple of weeks. We'll just let the whole thing settle and he could probably do that at home. And then after that, we'll get cracking. There was a further fill up for hearts when Di Camona signed a new deal until 2020. Having already signed Captain Christoph Berra, John Sutter, Michael Smith, Oche Ikpizu, and now Di Camona, and with talks continuing with Naismith, Peter Haring and Arnold Jom, Levin admits he anticipates a much quieter summer window. Hearts are expected to announce the pre-contract signing of Livingston defender Craig Halkett and Levin said Clevid has also extended his contract by another year, which was up in the summer, and trying to get everything in place for next season as early as possible. We made quite a few signings of important players like Christoph, John, Michael, Smith, Uche and New We are still trying with Nasey, Peter Herring and Arno John. If I can do that, then it means the next summer we'll probably only have to sign two or three players. By Alan Temple
3: Young are right to challenge complacent older generations on climate change. By Letters Published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 19th of March 2019 As one in the latter half of his eighth decade, I want to applaud the actions of the many young scholars from Scotland and indeed around the world who went on strike last Friday. Rebels with a cause as pupils take to streets to save planet, the Herald, March 16th. Their attitude towards climate change, the most pressing issue facing this planet today, was refreshing and hopeful. To those who advocated that they should have remained in their schools learning their lessons, all I can say is that on this extremely important issue, they have a very good grasp of the basic facts relating to climate change and the future of this planet. The reason people want the students back in schools is because on the streets they are an embarrassment to them. The striking students are pointing out the grave shortcomings of the political leadership locally, nationally and internationally throughout the world to address climate change. They are also pointing out the shortcomings of the fossil fuel industry, which, despite all the evidence, is still exploiting for profit the known reserves and discovering new reserves of these highly damaging carbon-intensive fuels to exploit. These reserves, for the good of the planet, should be left in the ground. These companies should instead be investing the huge sums involved in further exploration and exploitation of fossil fuels in renewable energy and the long-term sustainability of this planet, thus investing in the futures of the young people on strike last Friday, their health, well-being and indeed very lives. The First Minister said some pretty bland words of support for the students while saying that she could not condone repeated absences from school. Earlier last week, she was speaking warmly about the upward revised figures from oil production from the North Sea. This has led to some speculation that this announcement will lead to another bid for independence. An independent Scotland built on fossil fuel extraction and use is doomed to be short-lived as global warming will, in the short to medium term, so change the face of the planet that there will be a complete breakdown of order and civilization as we know it. It is duplicity like this, bland words of support for those campaigning to preserve the planet and warm words for those seeking to destroy it. That is bringing the young people out onto the streets. We need a great deal more honesty and transparency from politicians. The First Minister leads a government that is bringing forward a bill to tackle climate change. This bill is one that is very short on ambition. It does not come anywhere near meeting the necessary targets for cutting greenhouse gases required by Scotland to make a meaningful contribution to curbing climate change and global warming. It will, if agreed in its present form, leave the young Scottish people who were on strike last Friday in a world where their country continues to contribute unnecessarily to the destruction of this planet. My grateful thanks to all those young people for boldly challenging the older generations who, for too long, have been complacent about the future. Walter Atwood, 7 James Street, Winds of Milton, Stirling.
6: Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q& and Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q and Review and the producer was Jordan Duncan. Q and Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity, number sc zero one eight zero one six. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at com, or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772. 3976.